Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen, and today we have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Bruce Perry to the show. Dr. Perry is the Senior Fellow of the Child Trauma Academy based in Houston, Texas, and a professor at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, and the School of Allied Health at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. He's one of the world's leading experts on childhood trauma, and his clinical research and practice focuses on examining the long-term effects of trauma in children, adolescents, and adults. His work has been instrumental in describing how traumatic events in childhood change the biology of the brain. Dr. Perry is also the author with Maya Zalovitz of The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, a best-selling book based on his work with maltreated children, and Born for Love, Why Empathy is Essential and Endangered. Additionally, he's authored more than 300 journal articles and book chapters and has been the recipient of a variety of professional awards. His neurosequential model of therapeutics has been integrated into an extensive range of clinical and child protection settings. Before we get started with the material of today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that we're now on Patreon. And I've actually made this week's expanded show notes for this episode with Dr. Perry available for free for anyone who wants to access them. I write the expanded notes every week as one of the benefits that our patrons receive. They give a lot of background information on the episode and include a ton of additional links to research and validation for some of the theories that we talk about during the episode. I've heard from our listeners who subscribe on Patreon that they're a really great accompaniment to the show. And if you'd like to check them out, you can go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And if you'd like to continue to receive notes like those in the future, you can, of course, subscribe and support the show. All right, now it's time for our conversation with Dr. Perry. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for joining the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. We're really happy to get into this material with such an expert on the topic. Getting into it and to kind of frame our conversation, there's a good starting question here about just why is it? that developmental experiences, particularly early in childhood, and maybe even particularly ones that are negative or traumatic in nature, have such a long tail of impact through a person's life. So why is that? First of all, let me just say that this, as as so many areas in uh, child mental health, this is a young field, Mm. and there's a lot that is yet to be discovered about these issues. But here's my take on the current understanding of why that's the case. Yeah, that'd be great. And I think most people who are listening are pretty well aware that the development of the brain is very, very front-loaded. So even in the first nine months in utero, there's just explosive growth in creating neurons and having those neurons migrate. And then they send out connections to other neurons to start to create these these, these networks that allow us to think and move and all of the things that we do as human beings. And as we're, you know, after we're born, we've got a pretty big and pretty intact brain, but it's still very undeveloped. And, and one mm-hmm. of the most important components of that brain is a set of what we refer to as sort of core regulatory networks. These are things like norepinephrine-containing systems and dopamine-containing systems and serotonin-containing systems. And these, these networks originate in lower parts of the brain. And, and they send projections out 
literally to every single part of the developing brain. And, and they also send projections out to the body. And so they're kind of like Grand Central Station, that, that they have the ability to receive input from the environment and from your body, and then the ability to send signals to everywhere in the, in the brain, developing brain and developing body. And so what happens is if these systems become abnormally regulated, or impacted by some sort of developmental insult, like intrauterine alcohol or perinatal attachment problems, there's a cascade of risk in all of the areas that they communicate with. And so what can happen is that as the brain starts to organize in this sequential way and different functions come on board, the areas that are responsible for things like forming relationships and thinking and language are going to be getting abnormal signals from these regulatory networks that are involved in the stress response. And so there's this sort of cascade of toxic impact that can occur if there are significant patterns of stress activation that are inconsistent, unpredictable, extreme, the kinds of things that happen with what we refer to sort of as trauma. But it's interesting, you can get the same kinds of abnormal organization of these systems if there are disruptions of the primary caregiving relationship. So if there's attachment problems, you know, if the primary caregiver, let's say it's mom, is depressed, if she's in a bad sort of an abusive relationship, if she's struggling with substances, her ability to be consistent and predictable and attentive to the infant will have an impact on these organizing systems. And then there's that cascade of risk. Mm -hmm. So you're alluding to a variety of different kinds of experiences that could be developmentally problematic for a child. And I'm sure that this is a big, thorny, and complex question to a certain extent. But what qualifies, in air quotes, a experience or an event as traumatic versus merely stressful? And is there kind of a, a balance between a singular really traumatic event versus long-term, low-grade, stressful experiences? And do we know kind of which of those tends to have a longer or a more profound impact on the development of the brain? Yeah, no, the, uh, you just asked a set of really sort of essential questions to this whole area. Most of those questions are under investigation, but we do know some things. I mean, one of the things that we do know is that if there's an extreme event where an individual is completely dysregulated and their stress response systems are activated in extreme and prolonged ways, that will change the regulatory set point of these networks. And then they'll, the individual will tend to be more reactive and tuned up and, and kind of the classic picture of somebody who has a, a fight or flight response that's permanently on. Mm, mm -hmm. One of the things that we've been studying and a lot of other people are queuing in on is that you can get to that same point where these systems are abnormally regulated without a capital T big trauma. And we think that this is in the, in the long run going to turn out to be one of the more important clinical understandings in this area. And so there's a, and I don't want to get into the neurobiology too much, but if, 
the essential element of whether or not these systems change and, and have these dysfunctional consequences mm-hmm. is the pattern of the activation of the stress response. Mm-hmm. So if your stress response is activated in an unpredictable and chaotic way, you're going to get to the same point of abnormal functioning as if you had a capital T trauma that everybody would look at and go, oh, of course, that's horrific and that'll impact Mm -hmm. the child. Mm -hmm. And so the kinds of things that we're talking about are inconsistent, unpredictable parenting, being a minority child in a majority classroom, having food insecurity, housing insecurity, i.e. the things that go with poverty. So living in poverty, living in a community that has really poor social fabric, uh, having uh, adults around you who are barely managing their own lives and are incapable of being a regulatory force for you, all of those things will result in these core regulatory networks being abnormally organized and uh, the sort of the cascade of risk is the same Mm -hmm. as if you had a very obvious overt traumatic event. That's really interesting. And I think that it could be potentially really helpful for people who are listening just in terms of organizing their own lives. We can, I think, culturally sometimes be a little dismissive of people who merely had a quote-unquote challenging upbringing without some kind of a major, as you were saying, capital T traumatic event. So just the fact that that long-term low-grade stress and wear and tear, for lack of a better way of putting it, can have that kind of a long-term impact is really fascinating and I think uh, meaningful for a lot of people. And then the other part of this is it very much goes to the work that Rick, that you do, is that one of the things that we've seen is that, and again, our world right now is spending a lot of time focusing on ACEs, adverse, the bad experiences, Mm -hmm. and looking at the consequences of that. But the reality is in our work and the work of lots of other people, it turns out that the best predictor of how you're doing in the present isn't your history of adversity. It's your history of connectedness. Or lack thereof. Exactly. So if you experience adversities, but you have relational connections that are solid, the risk is much lower than if you have literally no adversities, but disconnection. And so this is an area that's Uh, in some ways, a little bit harder for the pathology-focused medical Mm -hmm. model to study. But it's an area that I think almost anybody who's a good observer of human beings sees. You know, we see it everywhere. I want to say back to you a little bit of what I'm hearing. And in my own background, I have a near master's in developmental psychology. My dissertation was on 15-month-olds and the zero to three period is of great interest. And so, and I've worked in a ton of schools. So that's kind of in my background as a clinical psychologist. And some of what you're saying here is nonetheless actually light bulb popping open for me. And I want to kind of say back to you some of the things you're saying. So as I understand it, the developing brain, let's say from infancy onward, although this is certainly happening in utero to some extent, has these core regulatory systems grounded in the brainstem of the three-story house of the brain with like three floors to it. So we have these ancient brainstem-oriented networks that are involved with norepinephrine, serotonin, and dopamine. These control centers originate there, which speaks to their primacy and their power because they, as you say, infuse the whole body and you know their tendrils infuse the whole brain. While those networks are 
regulating the development now, the construction, the further construction of the house of the brain that quadruples in volume, as you know, over the first 10 years plus or so. While all that's happening, these systems can be disrupted through stress or micro traumas, if you will, uh, that are relational uh, issues of caregiving, lack of attunement, disruption of caregiving, unpredictability, unresponsive, insensitive, invasive parenting, and so forth. So these networks then, uh, while they're controlling the construction of the house of the brain, are affecting that construction in the earliest years, the most foundational layers, the deepest strata of the brain, that's happening. And second, those networks themselves and their functioning are being disrupted by stress and even traumatic levels of stress as well. And to speak to Forrest's fundamental question, those effects live on in us today. I find that really, really interesting. And then just to make a point, way back in the day, I think even before I went back to grad school in my 30s, I came across this study in Scientific American. You may know it. Apparently, in the island of Kauai, in Hawaii, uh, every child was tracked from birth onward in this really, for the time, especially interesting longitudinal study. And they, to simplify, and this is from memory, took a look at kids who were born into high-risk situations, defined as a parent uh, with drug issues, criminal activity, and or mental illness, and maybe two out of three of those at least. And then they tracked those kids. So these are kids dropped into really tough circumstances of the sort that you'd named. And then 20 years later, they took a look at how they're doing. And they found that, unfortunately, many of them also had developed criminal record, uh, mental illness, and or drug issues. But there was roughly a quarter of them who hadn't. They had come through really tough conditions, not anything we would wish on anyone. So the fact that they came through it does not countenance it or, you know, support it. But they were studied. How did these roughly one in four people kind of manage to become semi-normal <laughs> as much as anyone is normal in adulthood? And the one factor they discerned, to your point, in the life of all these kids who made it was a strong relationship with at least one person. It could have been their baseball coach. It could have been their rabbi. Often it was like an uncle or a grandparent in the family system. Could have been a friendly neighbor who played chess with them or taught them the guitar or threw the ball back and forth. But they had one relationship that was a refuge for them, kind of a, an oasis of sanity and normalcy that also opened a door to how they could feel, how the kid could feel and then how an adult could feel in a way that was healthy and supportive and the value in them was indeed recognized. So, okay, so I've said a lot there. I wondered if you had any comments on what I've said so far? I think that you have summarized what I was talking about very, very nicely. That study, and as you, you I'm sure well know, there are many other similar studies that have shown the power of connectedness, right? That how the people that have been studying what we call resilience always hone in on the relational component as being so incredibly powerful. And the thing that we've been very interested in is kind of goes back to your original question is about the timing of experience. And so yeah. one of the things that we've, we've been able to do, we have this, this model that we use clinically that helps a clinical team put together kind of a reconstruction of a child's developmental history. 
and we look at the timing and the nature of good things and the timing and the nature of tough things, adversities. And then we look at their current functioning. And so we've taught people to do this all over the world. And we now have thousands of clinicians in probably 25 different countries who are using this in their clinical work. And then they enter all the data they enter goes into this core data set, which allows us to start asking some really interesting questions about the correlations between early life experiences and current functioning. One of the most powerful findings we found had to do with the first two months of life. If in the first two months of life, you had significant adversity and then were taken out of that environment and and the significant adversity or or the, the high developmental risk involved lots of bad things and no buffers, no relational connectedness. That's the highest developmental risk. And so if you had that in the first two months of life and then were removed after that and put into an environment that was good for the next 12, 13, 14 years, your outcomes were as bad as if you'd been in that bad environment the entire time. Wow. Now that speaks kind of to the fact that we have very developmentally uninformed child welfare, pediatric interventions for these confusing kids because they would present with struggles with re- regulation and people would give them the labels of ADHD. And then they, you know, they, they pathologize this sort of trauma-related problem. Now, the good news, however, speaks to your, the Kawhi study. If in the first two months of life, you had low developmental risk, in other words, minimal adversity and pretty good connectedness, and then for whatever reason, the wheels fell off your family and you ended up in a high-risk environment for the next 13 years, you were basically inoculated from bad outcomes. You did as well as if you had been in a low-risk environment the entire time. It's so striking about the impact of the first, as you say, two months, the, the first few months, let's say, of life. And I'm imagining right now listeners who had a really bad first few months, kind of panicking here, or parents <laughs> <laughs> who weren't the greatest for the first few months, really panicking here. So do you have any kind of rescue here? You could kind of like say some words of wisdom to help us figure out, including what's reparative from here. Yes. And the, well, the good news is if you understand sort of how somebody's organized and you understand their strengths and vulnerabilities from sort of this developmental lens, you can then put in place a set of Number one, expectations that are developmentally reasonable. You know, one of the things that we do all the time is that we take these individuals who've been struggling, particularly kids and youth, who may be chronologically 12, and they've got the social skills of a four-year-old. And then we have an expectation that you act your age. And so we just make it worse and worse and worse. And that that's one of the big problems with sort of a, the medical model of sort of neuropsychiatric disorders currently. It's not developmentally sensitive. Why is that not consistent with the medical model to lack that developmental focus? The etiology, if you think of it, is rooted in early childhood. Why isn't that taken into account? Well, you think it would be, right? And and actually the heritage of sort of American psychiatry is dynamic. It's psychodynamic. It's very developmental. But unfortunately, the current way people are being taught about human neuropsychiatric problems is to look at how they're functioning now. You know, we go through that symptom, uh, you have this symptom and this emotional 
thing and this and that. And if you fit this set of criteria, you have this disorder. It seems so odd to me that history is left out. It is. It is. It's. It's. And again, people will say, "Well, we kind of take a developmental history and stuff like, did he sit up at the right age? And when did he say his yeah. first word? And that's just such a fifty thousand foot flyover of development. And um, this this is why we developed this assessment model is to re- we really force the clinician to look at developmental history. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Bruce, if I could just feed it back to you here. You're speaking of your neurosequential model of therapeutics, right? So I just kind of want to call out that term and let you talk more directly about it, including these core principles in it. 
which I thought were really interesting, including for people in general. There's value there for people listening here to reflect on their own history in terms of the general principles of the neurosequential model. And also um, you're speaking to implicitly, and I just kind of want to call it out again, the sequentiality of it all. Like why does the developmental sequencing, including neurobiologically, uh, why does that sequencing matter and why should clinicians and people in general pay attention to when the wheels came off? Over time, we've adapted some of these concepts and principles for educational settings and for caregiving, but it really started out as a, an approach to clinical problem solving. And we use language, we try to be kind of careful about the way we use language. And so the term model, it's intentional for us to say that this is a model. And and one of my favorite sayings is that all models are wrong, uh, but some are useful. (laughs) (laughs) Such a great saying, right? Human beings are so complex. And every time we try to fit people into a little box and we're just sort of limiting a, a really important part of their humanness, I think. And so we wanted to be really explicit about the fact that, listen, these are approximations. You know, the way we talk about this, we're we're struggling with how to describe an organ that's got 86 billion neurons and is continuously dynamic. And it will be changed literally in the presence of one person one way and a different person a different way. And it's continually interactive. It's like, you know, it's almost laughable that we try to put people into these little boxes. Yeah, you know the phrase, the enchanted loom from Sherrington, right? You know, that's such a remarkable way to think about the brain, weaving the fabric of consciousness, yeah. Exactly. And so that was the first part is that we were like, all right, we're, we're, we're struggling with a way to sort of move things forward a little bit. And we recognize that this is, it's a model. And so the neuro part is that we also recognize that we're going to be using this neurobiological lens, which again, we fully acknowledge is a distorting lens. I mean, any any perspective you use to understand the complexities of human beings is going to have some shortcoming. And the really good clinician and a good clinical team will be lucky to have multiple lenses that can be brought to bear on the same set of problems. And you get a much richer view of the challenges and, and better ideas about how to engage and help. So that's that was the first part. And then the sequential part, as you pointed out, Rick, is just at the core of an appreciation of this. And it's acknowledging that the brain, we're trying to get people to remember that the brain develops in a sequential way from the lower areas to the top. And, and, and that the acquisition of function is something that is also sequential. And the, and the irony is, we're permeated with recognition and acknowledgement that functional capabilities are sequentially acquired. And nobody expects a child to learn how to surf before they learn how to stand. You know, we, we, people would laugh, but see, the motor development is so e- easily observed. Yeah. And so our expectations as an adult about a child who's just able to stand are going to be developmentally appropriate because we see where they are. And then we'll offer scaffolding experiences to help them take a step out of their comfort zone and try to walk on their own. And we'll put our hands out to help them. And that's a nice developmental interaction, right? 
you're present there. You help scaffold the, the child to leave their comfort zone to do something that's plausibly within their reach. And then you let them practice mm. and then and practice. And ultimately, through repetition, they acquire the capabilities to do that. That same principle is true about every brain-mediated function. Your ability to form and maintain relationships. To calm yourself down. Exactly. You know, the, the capacity to create a plan. You know, all of these, you know, whatever the neural networks are that help you do these things, they all develop in a sequential way. And when we have expectations, either as a parent or a teacher or a coach or a therapist, that are out of sequence or that are beyond the developmental capability of the individual, we're setting up a failure. And these kids very rarely say, oh, poor dad, he's just developmentally uninformed. (laughs) 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 You know, he'll get it someday. These kids, basically what they say is, I'm not capable. I'm bad. And so when teachers and when parents make these unrealistic expectations, you're just setting kids up to, to, number one, to fail, to feel bad about themselves. And then later on, when they actually could do it, They don't want to do it because they hate that thing because it's just an area of failure. To go to your example, and then I'll hand it off to Forrest here. If you've got a 12-year-old kid who walks and talks like a 12-year-old, looks like a 12-year-old, but let's say has the social skills of a four-year-old, in effect, has the infrastructure, the neuropsychological infrastructure that enables social functioning, cognition, and so forth, of like a four-year-old, you can't teach that kid the kind of social skills you would teach to a junior high schooler, you need to go back in this neurosequentially informed and respectful way to help to repair uh, what was missing and to fill in the blanks and those intermediate steps that should have happened when they were four. And I'm, I'm saying what you know, and I'm pulling this from your papers as well. But to me, this is one of the most useful takeaways from your work. No, thank you. And I, it's, and, and the irony is, it's not really mine. I mean, every developmental psychologist who studied children talks about this, you know, whether it's Vygotsky yeah. and the zone of proximal development. It don't, everybody sort of who studies development in one way or another kind of gets to this awareness. It's just, it, it's ironic though, Rick, you mentioned this, that like these things are known. Why are they not? applied in sort of the conventional medical model. And I, I, you know, that's a big complex set of questions, but because they're not, there's a tremendous amount of misdiagnosing, over-medicating, assuming that the child's the problem instead of your formulation about the child being a problem. And the, Mm -hmm. the interesting thing is when we go into environments where kids are misunderstood at school settings, for example, where there'll be, you know, 30% teacher turnover, there'll be kids performing in the fifth percentile on standardized testing, there'll be high rates of critical incidents and expulsions. And once the teachers learn a little bit about how these kids are dysregulated, that they're not intentionally going after the teacher, that there are strategies to help kids regulate, we literally will see within a year, no teacher turnover, we'll see kids test in the 45th percentile instead of the fifth. We'll see no suspensions. 
we see restraint rooms or, or I, you know, what they call, what are they called? That turned into basically storage rooms because they don't use them anymore. And so I, the, for me, the really gratifying thing about sort of helping people pivot a little bit and look at these problems a little differently is that they can then go have this huge impact on a lot of kids. It's really powerful work. And speaking to the level of intervention here, one of the things that really struck me when I first started reading through some of the things that you'll actually do actively with children or, or some of the things that you'll advocate for is the kind of, to use a very loose and fuzzy term here, uh, integrative or bottom-up nature of these interventions, things like art therapy and movement and music and things that you don't necessarily look at and go like, wow, this is a real CBT approach going on here, like a real cognitive behavioral way in. And what I want to kind of ask about and get to here is that I think one of my passing interests is therapy. And obviously, it's one of Rick's professional interests. And one of the things that I read inside of your work is the idea that sometimes clinicians will apply a form of intervention that isn't necessarily suited for the developmental nature of the client that they're working with. CBT is a wonderful thing. It can be used for really great purposes. It can be extremely effective when you're working with somebody who's capable of applying that kind of top-down control. But for somebody that you're talking about here who had this interrupted developmental cycle, maybe they're, they're biologically, and I'm, apologies for my, my weak use of the biology here, but like their, their cortex or their neocortex isn't as developed or isn't as functional as somebody who had sort of a normal developmental cycle. That person may not to be able to get the most out of top-down interventions like that and rather bottom-up interventions, things that activate younger, for lack of a better way of, of putting it, parts of the brain can be the most effective ways into working with somebody. Exactly. And so Forrest, actually, you, 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 your use of the biology was perfect. This... Hey, go me. <laughs> no, I always get nervous when the terminology starts going in. But uh, in practice, what does that look like working with somebody? Well, just, just for a moment to go back to the, the, the language Please, of yeah. the model. The, one of the things that, that I mentioned, the brain develops in a sequential way. What I didn't say in, is that the brain actually processes sensory experience in a sequential way. And so every mm. time you see something or hear something or somebody touches you, the first part of the brain that gets that information and has an opportunity to process and act on it are these lower parts of the brain. And so you have to go really kind of through a three-part process to get up to that smart, rational part of your brain. So the kind of reactive regulatory part of your brain gets first dibs on processing the information. And God forbid that part of your brain is, you know, makes the choice about how what to act because the default responses of that part of the brain are very categorical and very primitive. And now there are times when they're very appropriate. Like if you put your hand on a hot iron, it's very appropriate that that part of your brain acts before the information is fully processed in your cortex because otherwise you'd keep your hand on the on the iron and you'd burn the hell out of your finger so the lowest part of your brain and again this is an interesting thing about the brain the part of the brain that part of the brain can't tell time mm. but that part of the brain is also filled with all kinds of associations from your developmental history so if you grew up in an environment where the only man in your household 
yelled a lot, was episodically abusive to your mom, and your brain made an association between deep voices and sort of sort of large male visual images and threat. And you have female elementary teachers until the fifth grade, and all of a sudden you have a male teacher. You will have no idea why you can't learn. Because every time that guy talks, you start to feel dysregulated and it shuts down your cortex. And every time he comes over to try to help you and gets close to you, you feel threatened and you either shut down or you blow up. So that lower part of the brain will get first dibs on processing all incoming information. And then that kind of gets passed up to a more emotional part of your brain, kind of the limbic areas of your brain. And that part of the brain can process and act. And then finally, you get up to the top part of your brain where we theoretically are rational creatures. (laughs) And so what we found is that if someone has a pretty or well-organized brain, you can use your cortex. You can basically recruit them to be part of the therapeutic process, right? Mm-hmm. And they can use cognitive strategies. And like you said, CBT can be in a tremendously powerful therapeutic process if somebody has a pretty well-organized cortex and if that cortex isn't dysregulating input from lower parts of the brain, which will make it less effective and efficient. And so frequently, just the kids that we tend to work with and the adults tend to have trauma-related or developmental trauma-related symptoms which involve those core regulatory networks we talked about, which basically mean before you actually start to do the more cognitive work with them, you need to get to a sufficient level of regulation so that you can open up the cortical pathways to be your sort of co-therapist in the process. And so that's why we, we always talk about this sequence of engagement. Regulate and then relate, connect, and then reason. Unfortunately, a lot of times in a school setting, for example, we'll immediately go to reasoning with the child, like, stop doing that, or why did you do that, or you know that's not right, or how many times do I have to tell you? Or, and the reality is that child's not even in a position to process accurately your words. They're processing the nonverbal cues of anger and frustration from you, and that's keeping them dysregulated. And we could go on and on and talk about this because you guys, again, Rick, I'm sure you see this a lot in your work. And the key for our therapeutic approach is to adhere to that sequence of engagement, which involves making sure that there's sort of a regulatory baseline that you reach, which then really facilitates the connection part which then makes people start to feel safe enough to, to really have an open cortex. And so that's kind of the, a simple overview of our, what we're trying to do. Now, sometimes that means you'll do a lot of regulatory stuff, regulatory, 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 regulatory. But most of the time, a little bit of regulatory stuff and some relational sort of interactions back and forth, whether it's play whether it's sort of throwing a ball back and forth, whether it's sort of throwing words back and forth, you get to this sort of regulatory point where you can throw in a cognitive concept. And because, but cognitive stuff never sticks. It's like throwing stuff at the wall. It doesn't stick unless there's some sort of emotional vehicle. And the emotional vehicle, you know, can be 
charged with positive things or negative things. But if you can charge it with positive things like fun or throw the cognitive content in context of a narrative, a story, it'll get up there and they'll bounce, it'll bounce around in their head for a little while. If someone's listening here and, and thinking back on their own childhood, let's say, and this person I'm imagining could well have been me listening to this podcast some time ago, you know, able to function, maybe a little bit of therapy in the history, not much of an interest in doing another year or two or three of that. What could this person do, let's say, who had a really rocky first six years or six months or six days? What for you would be the top two, three, four self-help headlines that this kind of generically described person could engage that is framed within this uh, bottom-up neurosequential model? In part of answering this, it's probably helpful for me to describe the way we've been shifting our thinking about therapeutic moments or what's, what's a dose of therapy. And sort of, again, from the medical model, the dose of therapy is like this 45 minutes, 50 minutes, once a week. From a neurobiological perspective, a, a dose of inner human interaction that has therapeutic capabilities can be as brief as three seconds. And it could be just a smile from a grocery clerk as you check out. It could be, you know, looking at uh, somebody you're sitting next to in the bus and sharing sort of a look when you see somebody act kind of weird, right? It could be a teacher just patting you on the, sh- on the shoulder and saying, hey, I hope you have a really good day. And, and when kids and anybody is in a relationally enriched environment, they have opportunities for these dosings of tiny little bits of connection, tiny little bits of healing. And so that's one of the first things is that don't isolate yourself relationally enriched environments where over time you get to know people and feel safe with them really are at the core, I think, of healing. But along the way, if you're dysregulated, some of the things that are really very, very helpful are to take advantage of these fundamental somatosensory soothing uh, and regulating activities that we, that we know of, like simple, things as simple as walking. You know, if you get up and walk for three or four minutes and you dose it, and again, I think this people need to think about this as having a, like, like a, I'm going to take a four minute walk and dose it every, every two hours, you know, just like taking a pill. But if you did that, you would find yourself globally feeling more regulated throughout the day. If you also add in a minute or two of at your desk, sort of deep breathing, and learn some of those regulatory techniques that may emerge from getting instruction about mindfulness or yoga. People that do sport, people that do needlework, people that dance, people listen to music. All of these are forms of potentially healing regulatory activities. And when you talk Mm. to people that have had their own journey to, to become healthier, they'll almost always tell you two things. There was a person or there was someone or a group of people who sort of made me feel connected and embraced, just like you mentioned earlier, Rick. And then they found some form of regulatory activity that they kind of managed their own distress with and art, music, sport, whatever. And it's interesting when you start to look at 
you know, some of the really greatest athletes in, in our era. Lance Armstrong, despite the doping, really had some challenging stuff in his household when he was growing up. And he addressed it by self-regulating by riding. He loved riding his bike. And he ride and ride and ride and ride. Michael Phelps, uh, same thing. You know, swim and swim and swim and swim. And we, you know, it's, and I'm not saying everybody who's a great athlete is doing it to escape or to regulate, but there's just no doubt that you can find a whole range of sort of socially acceptable activities that have this healing and therapeutic quality. To build on what you said about how the feeling of relationship can be very therapeutic for people, framed within this notion of microtherapies, you know, much as microtraumas add up to macrotrauma, in much the same way, people can have microtherapeutics, little therapeutic moments that are really, really helpful for people. And one of the things I wanted to emphasize is that this flow in the relationship field is a two-way street. And one way that I've seen for many people, including myself, that it's really reparative to feel that you can contribute yourself, that you have you you can help others. So even if they're you know imperfect in how friendly or loving they are toward you, you can still muster compassion, kindness, support, generosity, and so forth toward them. And no one can stop you from doing that. And that too can feel really healing. Yeah. As one final question, going back in time, thinking of yourself as a, as a younger person, a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, if you had the opportunity to do that and to talk to that person and tell them something, what would you want to tell them? It's not what you know, it's how you are. You know, it's, it's, we, we, have a, we have a world that's so focused on acquisition of cognitive, basically. Excuse my language. <laughs> You know, we just jam stuff into the heads of these kids. And I, I think the most important thing I wish I would, and, and I, I, I did get that message from a lot of people, and that's kind of why I'm the way I am. But it really is the way you are. Just if you're kind to people, if you put away stuff and be present with people, just a, a good things flow from that. I think that's a wonderful reflection and also a, a great note to, and our time together on. So doctor, again, thank you so much for doing this. This was really wonderful. It's my pleasure. Keep up the good work, guys. You guys are doing good stuff. So today we had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Bruce Perry. We began by learning about why childhood is such an important developmental time. And Dr. Perry really emphasized the importance of that first six-month period, and particularly the first two months. Because the events that happen to us during that period of time really have cascades of effect in the way that the brain develops, including in extreme circumstances, situations where parts of the brain do not develop biologically properly, which can make certain kinds of interaction and behavior, particularly very top-down forms of interaction and behavior, increasingly challenging as somebody ages. We talked about the difference between trauma and mere stress and how long-term chronic mild to moderate stress can actually have in many ways a similar impact as acute intense experiences of trauma do. Dr. Perry spoke for a little while about the neurosequential model of therapeutics and maybe some of the ways in which people listening to the episode can reflect inside of their own lives on the ways in which that sequence has maybe been disrupted. 
one of the questions that arose to me during this conversation was about the difference between people who experience maybe mild to moderate traumatic events in their lives, whether it's low-grade stress when they're growing up or moderate, full-on traumatic experiences. And some of those people seem to be able to recover while others cannot. And what are the difference between those two groups? And one of the things that Dr. Perry really emphasized throughout the conversation is the importance of lodestone relationships. Important relationships throughout our life that the child could latch onto and use as a kind of safe harbor inside of the storm. In general, the more that we can pull ourselves into community and connection with others, the safer the developmental process is going to be. And while the conversation, of course, focused on childhood development and traumatic experiences during that period of time, really all of the lessons throughout the podcast, I felt, had a direct application to the adult life. I wanted to give you a quick reminder about our new Patreon account, as well as your opportunity to receive the expanded show notes for this episode for free. Just go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. You should be able to find the expanded show notes right toward the top of our page. Just scroll down a little bit. They're pinned to the top. If you'd like to continue to receive those notes, and of course, know that you're supporting the show as well, you can become a subscriber for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month. If you would like to support Dr. Perry's Child Trauma Academy, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. Again, his wonderful book is The Boy Who Is Raised as a Dog. It's truly one of the most touching books on the subject that I'm aware of, and I would recommend it wholeheartedly to anyone who is interested in this material. As always, if you've been enjoying and appreciating the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating or a positive review. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.